Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. For instance, I bet you didn't know that there's a whole planetary protection team at NASA that's dedicated to protecting other planets from us. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Planetary protection is probably the first time in human history that humans have decided we're not going to make the same mistakes that we made before. We're not going to bring malaria to the new world on Columbus's ships. We're not going to introduce rabbits to Australia. We've done that before and we know it's a bad thing. So if we're looking for Mars life or for European life or for lunar life, if it exists, there's a fog of Earth life all over the instruments and everything we're trying to take there and we need to get rid of it. That's the foundation of planetary protection. And it turns out that the best way to keep your spacecraft clean is actually to scrub it with a washcloth. That sounds kind of funny, but that's really what we do. The same way you scrub your dishes in your sink, you take the washcloth and you soak it, and then you wipe the spacecraft down. You don't want to scrub too hard. You have to be careful not to break them. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and that was Dr. Cassie Conley of NASA telling us how to keep your spacecraft from spreading gunk all over space. Thanks to Dr. Conley for helping us introduce the theme of tonight's show, Under the Hood. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is a podcast. It's also a game show that's also live journalism where contestants tell us their most interesting IDKs or I don't knows. To judge these IDKs, the panel for our Under the Hood episode is a trio of people who really, really, really know how things work. So would you please welcome the author and idea spreader Seth Godin, the author, journalist, and comedian Faith Saley, and a true eminence grease of the digital revolution, Mr. Nicholas Negroponte. Hello, good people. Hi. Very nice to have you all on stage tonight. Thanks for being here. We'll start with you, Seth Godin. Here's what we know about you so far. Uh, you're the author of at least 18 books that cover being a leader, being a linchpin, knowing when to quit. You've used the internet, I would argue, far more creatively and productively, for sure, than the rest of us. We know there's a Seth Godin action figure, which comes with the little book of marketing secrets. So, Seth Godin, tell us something we don't yet know about you, please. Uh, well, in 1973, I started to be an instructor of style canoeing, which is a fascinating sport that combines physics with bravery, in that you're on a flat surface water in a 18-foot-long, 16-foot-long wooden boat by yourself, tipping it over all the way, making it do tricks, go sideways, backwards, frontwards. And the coolest thing about it is it doesn't involve strength, it involves skill. And if you can teach a nine-year-old to use skill to control the world around her, you can change her whole life. Seth Godin, very happy to have you. Next up, Faith Saley. Let's see what we have on you. 
You have been a Rhodes Scholar. You've won an Emmy. You've performed across many, many media. You are a regular on Sunday morning from CBS News and also on an NPR show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Uh, doesn't, doesn't <laughs> I'm not an action right. figure, though. I'm not an action figure. Uh, you recently published a wonderful memoir called Approval Junkie. So, Faith Saley, let's hear something we don't yet know about you, please. Um, I can recite all the titles of Shakespeare's plays in under 30 seconds. Whoa. Doesn't mean I've read them. Do it, do it. Um, you, really? All right. On your mark, get set, go. Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, and Did You Like It, Titus, Andronicus, Macbeth, and Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, King Lear, The Comedy of Errors, The Taming of the Shrew, and Much Ado About Nothing, Henry the Fourth and Fifth and Sixth and Eighth, Richard the Second and Third, Midsummer Night's Dream, King John and the Merchants of Venice, Troilus and Cressida, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Pericles, Time and of Athens, Antony and Cleopatra, Cymbeline, Love's Labors, Lost in Twelfth Night, Measure for Measure, A Winter's Tale, Merry Wives of Windsor, and All's Well That Ends Well. The the origin story is that I grew up in the dark, sinister world of children's musical theater, and yeah. uh, and I did this play, I did this musical when I was fourteen called I Will, which was about Shakespeare, and that what I just recited to you it's basically the the, no, it's the opening number. I could have sung it to you, but it's more impressive oh, if I recite it. If I know, do you want to sing it now? Oh, it's it's kind of long, but it sort of starts. I will never forget Hamlet, Romeo, and Juliet, Othello, and did you like it? Anyway, that's how I learned it. Face sailing. Oh, thank you. And our final panelist, Nicholas Negroponte, an architect by training, a technologist by practice. You co-founded the MIT Media Lab in 1985. The opening speaker was Steve Jobs. The caterer was an unknown named Martha Stewart. In 1984, a year earlier, you gave the very first TED Talk, which was two and a half hours long, and you predicted over time quite accurately pretty much all of our digital future now. Your MIT projects have ranged from the One Laptop Per Child program to urging the CEO of Walmart to make stakes with a 3D printer. I wonder, was he enthusiastic at all about that? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Uh, Nicholas Negroponte, tell us something we don't yet know about you, please. Um, maybe this relates to architecture, but I have uh, a, an ability to walk into a room and then come out of it and be able to draw a near-accurate floor plan. And in 1983, I was working in Pakistan putting computers in, in schools, and my counterpart was the, the nuclear physicist who ran the nuclear projects in Pakistan. And one day he says to me, why don't you take my car and go to PINSTEC, which was the Pakistan Institute of Nuclear Science and Technology. I arrive and they walk me through this facility. I get back to MIT and there's a CIA agent in my office. <laughs> and he says, nobody's ever been to PINSTEC and you were apparently there. I said, but I know nothing about nuclear energy or nuclear bombs, but I can draw you a perfect floor plan. <laughs> That's what I did for them. They actually had you do it? I, I actually did it. I, I just <laughs> drew it out. All right. Well, we're very pleased and grateful to have all of you here tonight. It's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it's going to work. Contestants will come up on stage to deliver their IDKs 
And once you've heard all the contestants, you will pick a winner. The IDKs are to be judged on three criteria. Number one, does it surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? And to help with that last criterion, we've got on hand a real-time human fact-checker. Would you please welcome Beret Lamb? Beret writes business and economic stories at TheAtlantic.com. Her recent series, Inside Jobs, profiled 100 Americans about their work. So, Beret, that sounds like pretty good training for tonight's theme, Under the Hood. Tell us something we don't know about one of the jobs or one of the workers you just wrote about. One of my favorites was a woman named Letitia, who's an OnStar operator. And her story is that she was helping this guy in Missouri who had a very particular kind of roadside emergency, which was that his daughter was having her baby in his car. And she actually talked them through delivering the baby and cutting the umbilical cord with like an iPhone charger. <laughs> and everyone came out alive. <laughs> All right, Beret, thank you for being here tonight. It's time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Tonight's theme, remember, is under the hood. How things really work, the hidden causes behind effects, be they physical, societal, you name it. All right, then, would you please welcome to the stage our first contestant of the evening, Noam Osband. Hey there, Noam. Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, I'm from Boston originally, almost done with my PhD, and I make films under the name The Nosy Anthropologist. All right, uh, I'm ready. So are our panelists, Seth Godin, Faith Saley, Nicholas Negroponte. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? How can you visibly tell when a woman is most fertile, or to put it perhaps in more technical language, what is the conspicuous visible sign when a female homo sapien is in estrus? I have a lot of experience um, well. being in estrus. Um, in fact, am I right now, gentlemen? Noam, could we tell if said female is in estrus um, uh, with her clothes on? Um... It makes no difference to the answer to this question. Mm, okay. Given that you study anthropology, not physiology, is there any cultural element to this? Yes. So let's be clear. This is, let's just call a spade a spade. This is a gal who's ovulating, right? Uh, typically, yeah, yeah. It's a gal who's ovulating. How can you tell? Okay. Um, but you say it's visible. It's not like, oh, I just heard that egg drop. <laughs> I think it's a behavior, not something that I think it's one a behavior. would see. Oh, because he's micro- an anthropologist. Yeah. I like the way you're That's thinking. That's the whole Seth. cultural thing. That's my guess. So she is like close talking or something. Yeah, being she's <laughs> twerking, stuttering. She no, chooses to appear uh, sexier, so she wears um, more revealing clothes. Um, that is not the answer. It's it's. I agree with you. So you it's not wait. that, like, like I know when you're pregnant, your, your lips get bigger, and I'm talking about the ones on your face. And <laughs> You know this better than me. Yeah. And so, so, it is, so this is not, like, one of her features that swells, perhaps. This is a behavior she exhibits. Human genitalia does not engorge during ovulation. I wasn't suggesting that. You're <laughs> disgusting. You are disgusting. Yeah. 
Noam, uh, you're, you're, for, the, for those listening on the radio, you are, I think, physically vibrating would be the phrase to describe. Yeah. <laughs> you so badly want to tell us, Noam, don't hate me. Slightly a trick question. There is no sign. Uh... We practice concealed ovulation, which is fairly uncommon in mammals and primates. Usually, when a primate is ready to reproduce, there would be visible signs, right? We can picture engorged genitalia, perhaps. They or... present their really red hineys. Exactly. Um, but we don't do that. So what's really interesting is trying to understand why did Homo sapiens evolve to have no signs of ovulation. Because one consequence of that is we have to have more sex. Humans are what we say are continuously sexually receptive, which does not mean that we always want to have sex. It just means that we have sex throughout the uh, year. Throughout the year, throughout the... <laughs> throughout the week, the if you're lucky. cycle, yeah. So, uh, uh, so why did humans evolve this way? So there's two main schools of thought about this. One school of thought suggests that we evolve this way because we are monogamous. And uh, because (laughs) there are evolutionary advantages to having uh, a a man around for the raising of the child. In fact, studies of small-scale societies have shown this. And if the man has no idea of knowing when he is most likely to be able to reproduce, it forces him to stick around. Increased sex leads to a a more attached pair bond, and everybody benefits because uh, women, um, when they are feeding the young um, and after they've had kids, they can't forage quite as easily. I found that to be true. Uh, Conversely, it's arguably to the evolutionary advantage of the man to have uh, somebody who will be taking care of his child. Now, there is a slightly devious twist on this, the cuckoldry hypothesis. Women, because there are no visible signs when they are most fertile, could then perhaps sneak around, get the best genetic material around, and voila, the man won't know. So, can I just interject here for a second? Because lots of things in our culture aren't optimized for the survival of our genes. They're merely optimized to help the people who are in power stay in power. So you can't point to evolutionary biology reasons to explain why we have certain things in our culture. That it may just be the result of hundreds of thousands of years of misogyny. That it's taking power away from women not to and, demonstrate that they're ovulating physically? Well, no, sure. so, so to that end, right? So people hypothesize that right. menstruation taboos, right? So a woman exactly. having to go to a menstrual hut. Because there are no obvious signs of ovulation, the best guess that we can have is it, is it comes during the period after menstruation. So if we can control women through their menstruation, right, is in some ways being able to control uh, reproduction. So to that end, you're absolutely right. And then there have been one study with the grand title, Ovulatory Cycle Effects on Tip Earnings by Lap Dancers, Economic Evidence for Human Estrus. And it shows that there was a difference in tips for strippers who were not on the pill that they actually earned more when they were ovulating, as opposed to strippers who were on the pill. So they had no difference uh, in their cycle and their tips remained constant. And uh, I am told, Noam, that uh, among your talents, you also play music and that you may have composed a song oh, no. about concealed ovulation. Is that I true? Did. 
you're going to do just fine in your thesis review. <laughs> the female homo sapien hides her ovulation for reasons that we're unsure of. We don't sexually signal bright pink when we mingle, which leads to us making more love. We can test in a lab or a strip club ain't bad for subtle signs in smell and in sight. Still, the queer fact remains about us sapiens. Concealed ovulations, all right. Concealed ovulations, all right. Ray Lamb, um, concealed ovulation, I, and I then have, some. So human females do not show the typical signs, um, like mammals, when they are ovulating. And it's so concealed that many women actually, when they're trying to conceive, will have to use an app or try to measure one of the only signs, which is a subtle temperature change. And to Faith's point, uh, some other studies have found that female attractiveness is rated higher sometimes by males during ovulation, and there's some changes sometimes, like lip color, uh, pupils dilated, skin tone looking good. Are we all avoiding the two words that are most important, which are cervical mucus? Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry, but... Come on. I think we should stop now. Noah Mosband, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. So, panelists, uh, later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. But for now, let's welcome our next contestant, Molly West Duffy. Hey, Molly, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. So I'm from New York City, and I work for IDEO, a global design firm where I study organizational culture. Uh, We want to get under some kind of hood, so tell us what you can. There is an old myth that eating cheese before you go to bed gives you nightmares. A study conducted in 2005 by the British Cheese Board attempted to debunk this claim (laughs) by asking 200 participants to eat a piece of cheese before bed. That is just the way the British Cheese Board would handle that. (laughs) The study found that actually eating cheese before bed helps you go to sleep. But what was more interesting was that eating different types of cheeses leads to different types of dreams. So, like, if you're going to have nightmares if you eat Munster cheese? (laughs) So should we be skeptical off the bat that the people who find out that eating cheese before bed <laughs> helps you go to sleep board. and gives you nice dreams is the British <laughs> cheese board? Is that? Yes, absolutely. So blue Stilton, which is a pungent blue cheese, resulted in the most bizarre and unsettling types of dreams, including dreams of talking animals and warrior kittens. Yeah. Cheshire cheese, which is a very mild cheese, resulted in the least memorable dreams. And cheddar cheese, which is the most popular cheese in America, resulted in dreams of celebrities. Wait, what? Is this anecdote? They, they gave cheese to like three people, and then to they were like, what was your people. dream? 200? Also, are you sure they're not getting the arrow backwards? Could it be that the people who dream about celebrities eat cheddar cheese? <laughs> totally. Could be correlation. Or the person sleeping with you isn't sleeping, because you're farting. <laughs> 
So, so why, do, why does this matter? Scientists haven't figured out why this happens, but some guess it's because of the bacteria and fungal content of the cheese. Potent blue cheeses have a high fungal content, which might increase dream vividness. So the next time someone asks you how your dreams were, you can tell them, cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would have a sexy dream if I ate manchego. <laughs> I'm still a little bit hung up on the part about you don't want cheese to give you bad dreams, right? But now the British Cheese Board tells us that basically you can control which kind of dreams you have by which kind of cheese you eat, which just sounds like a great way to sell more cheese. But, but I actually think the most interesting thing here is the implications for science. So this idea of like what potential psychoactive effects are coming out of fungi that we haven't yet realized. Um, so there's different compounds like tryptamine and tyramine that influence our brain's chemical systems and thus our states of mind. But well, are, are, one of the implications for science is that if scientists have nothing better to do than study what kind of cheese you should eat before you go to sleep, they need to find another line of work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that many foods and beverages have been attributed over history to different kinds of visions and dreams, right? Do you think about Joseph in the Bible and the Pharaoh having all these wild dreams and Joseph interpreting them? Do, do we think the Egyptians were eating uh, Stilton at the time, for instance? We, we don't know anything particularly about that, but absolutely history has shown that over the course of um, many different types of foods, there's been different reactions. And there's lots of different um, amino acids and, and fungi that are in lots of different types of food. Beret lamb, cheesy dreams. What can you tell us? So first things first, Egyptians did have cheese. Really? <laughs> yes. And their cheese was kind of like cottage cheese, is what the historians say. Um, but I did find the British Cheese Board study. And um, I think the weirdest dream in the study is something about like Stilton cheese causing a woman to dream about a vegetarian crocodile upset because it could not eat children. <laughs> Molly West Duffy, Cheesy Dreams, thank you so much. And would you all please welcome our next contestant, Michelle Young. Hi, Michelle. Nice to see you, Michelle. What's your story? What do you do? I am a professor of architecture at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, and I founded the web magazine Untapped Cities, which is about urban discovery. Okay. Urban discovery sounds pretty good for our under-the-hood theme. Uh, what do you have for us tonight? All right. I'd like to bring you back to the year 1897, when the pneumatic tube mail system was installed in New York City whisking letter mail underground at 30 miles per hour. The route was about the length of two marathons, connecting two dozen post offices, going from downtown Manhattan to Harlem, back down with a crosstown tube between 34th Street Post Office and Grand Central, a stop in Brooklyn, and two in the Bronx. And in the 1950s, it still carried over half of New York City's mail. Oh. The story of New York City's pneumatic tubes is part of our country's era of scientific discovery, but my favorite part is what our forefathers sent through as tests in the system. Can you guess what the first five items to go through the New York City pneumatic tube system were? <laughs> Cheese and an ovulating woman. <laughs> um, how big were the tubes so we can uh, limit our guesses? They were about eight and a half inches wide. The canister could hold 500 pieces of mail. So they're bigger than a tennis ball can. By a lot. Wow. So it's not Eight just a, a gecko. You could get like a small lamb can... in one of them. 
<laughs> yeah. But 18, so 1897, like... The first five items you want us to guess. And they were test items, so... Okay. Monocles. <laughs> mm. Would have been good, but not no. monocles. Okay. Think of the time period. This reminds me when, when we were little and we'd go to the bank, right? Didn't yeah. the bank? So I think it was a whole bunch of lollipops. That, that would be good. These two systems have still survived. I mean, the technology has survived in places yeah. like yeah. banks, like Disney World. Their trash system. So food was a uh, food stuff wasn't one of the five items, huh? Uh, actually, not one of the first five, but food was later sent. Postal offices were sending sandwiches down to their fellow post office workers. So is it are the five articles like super fendisiacal? Um, not all of them. Ooh. There's still some that we really care about. Yeah, Real old say. Coca-Cola with um, cocaine in it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Shoot. Were okay. the uh, were the a, a items- bustle a bustle. Ooh, no. A flag. So, a flag. A flag is one of them. Okay. Okay, so and the, are copy they all of the part of the same class, or are they all... No. How about, a, how about a copy of the Constitution? Exactly. <gasps> oh. That's pretty good. Seth Godin yes. getting a high five? So I still think these are important things. Maybe some people don't what, uh, think anymore. So a flag... <laughs> oh, wait, did they send, like, a, a just-arrived immigrant? <laughs> I don't think we're going to guess items okay. three through five, so I'd love you to tell us. All right. So the first tube contained a Bible and then also a flag and the copy of the Constitution. The second tube contained an imitation peach in honor of Senator Chauncey Depew of New York, who was fondly known as the peach. I was going to say that. And then a third carrier had a black cat in it. And so that everyone had to cross its path. Was it alive when it got out? It was alive. So the lamb gets me almost full credit on that. <laughs> yes, you were very close. Michelle, what happened to this? You said it was. Yes. It delivered half the mail in the 50s? Yeah. What happened? So the, first of all, this was a congressional act that was um, in the early 1890s that was like, figure out how to transport mail underground. And so later they realized that the system was just prohibitively expensive. So by the 1930s, it was costing almost $20,000 per mile to maintain the system. So it ran until 1953. There were stops and starts in between in all these years. But New York City was really like the main system that they really felt that should keep going. But today, most of the infrastructure is gone, um, but you can still find some remnants around the city, particularly in old post offices in the walls. Sometimes you'll see two tubes. There's always one that went in and one that came out. Um, For a while in New York, uh, construction workers would find tubes that said uh, property of US post office. Um, but at that point, the system wasn't working anymore. And today, all those ducks underground are for various telecommunications wiring. Um, and it, it still gets pretty crowded down there. Um, and there's a battle for space, just like there is for real estate above ground. A lot of dead wires are left underground because companies are afraid that if they remove them, someone else will just take their, um, take their space. Beret Lamb, did they really send a black cat to test the pneumatic tube mail system? Yes. So initially, it was devised as sort of a high-frequency trading method of the day. So in London in 1853, they wanted to get information faster than uh, regular mail or telegraph. So it was a way for traders to get communication and make better trades. Uh, it was in big cities all over the world, or was New yeah, York? Yeah, London, Paris, uh, and then in the United States, Philadelphia was the first. Um, but what is remarkable about this, the whole subject, is that it's being now reproposed for human beings in the form of Hyperloop. Yep. And the idea that we'll make vacuum tubes that we all get into a car that goes, has come back. Would you do it? Would you be right oh, number I one? Oh, I would do it in a nanosecond. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> Michelle Young, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. It's time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants, and we make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight are Seth Godin, Faith Saley, and Nicholas Negroponte. Our fact checker is Beret Lamb. And tonight's theme, you'll recall, is Under the Hood. Now, to that end, earlier we asked our studio audience the following question. What is something that you often use or engage in but have no idea how it really works Panelists, I'd love each of you to read one of the audience submissions. Seth, why don't you take the first crack? My office computer network. I am the IT guy. <laughs> That's both a liberating and frightening Terrifying. thought at the same time, yeah. isn't it? Faith Saley, what do you have? Uh, the soda tab. I usually rip it off. Allegedly, I've never heard this before, it's used to hold straws, but I never actually looked into it. Mm. Mm. To hold straws, is it the... I think you pull it and then turn it and it secures the straw. Uh, that has, has that occurred to anybody has anyone in ever had an ever? insecure straw problem, really? <laughs> Nicholas Negroponte, you've got uh, I've, audience I've got member's one. card. Yeah. Signed, hey. Emily S., um, and it was almost as if it was sent to me personally. It says, <laughs> computer screens. I use them every day, but how does it actually work behind the glass? Tell and us. in two seconds, think of it as what they call pixels, little tiny, there are thousands of them. And in these little elements, they either reflect light or transmit light. And we now can make them so small that it looks continuous. And when I started in the early ancient days, we had a piece of glass that was six inches by six inches, which had 64 pixels, 64 pixels, monochrome, and 20% didn't work. And everybody said, there's no future in that. No future whatsoever. And uh, look where we are today. I love that Emily S. comes to the show tonight with a, an impossible question about how computer screens work, and she gets the guy that started the MIT Media Lab, and he actually knows, so yeah. nicely done. Bravo. <laughs> All right, let's get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Rabbi Moshe Taub. Greetings, Rabbi Taub. Tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Sure. So I'm a rabbi, a writer, and most central for why I'm here today, I have been for the past 15 years the director of BVK Kosher Certifiers. Mm, okay. Kosher certification would certainly seem to fit our under-the-hood theme. What do you have for us tonight? So to keep kosher means to follow a select set of biblical laws about food, mostly has to do with animals. Some animals are okay. Cows and chickens are okay. Pork and shellfish are no-no. As well as there are specific guidelines how to slaughter animals. And we have to stay away from all types of bug infestation. So here's my question. Out of a population in the United States of 320 million people and growing, about only 2% or 5 million 
are Jewish. And of those, many are not strictly kosher. Yet about 40% of all sold packaged food products in this country are certified as kosher. So what makes kosher so popular when it seems to attract a very narrow market? Hmm. Okay, so wait. Let me get those stats right, Rabbi. 2% of the U.S. population is Jewish? Jewish. Jewish, okay. <laughs> uh, Help us for a moment, though, because how much of it is naturally kosher? For, for example, if you want gluten-free, there are many things that are gluten-free automatically. So you don't have to that is a make great any effort. Question. So fruits and vegetables will be a great example, but they're a bad example. Romaine lettuce, for yeah. instance, is infested with aphids. Wait, so does that mean that romaine lettuce is not kosher? If you are a kosher certified restaurant, you will have a rabbi or a trained individual in the back checking every broccoli, floret, every cauliflower, and every piece of lettuce. Yes. So it's okay unless there isn't a bug found on it? Right. According to the FDA, uh, you're allowed one maggot fragment per square inch of chocolate, I believe. But in kosher, we have a zero tolerance. Mm. There are things that are naturally kosher, but it gets a little bit more complicated than that. So could the answer be that things that are certified kosher are, are scrupulously clean? A large percentage of those who purchase kosher products do so because they have the impression of cleanliness. So there is some truth to that. Okay, but that's not the answer. No, that, that is a part of the answer, yes. The question is, are they accurate? Is it true that just because something is kosher, it's actually cleaner? I would argue, in a sense, yes. Uh, I visit most of my facilities between once a week or once a month. Probably kosher certifiers visit their facilities more often than the government. So yes, we are on the ball. We do watch it very closely, and you are guaranteed that there's no meat products or aphids. Let's look at the numbers. 2% of the population are Jewish, but they're going to eat more than 2% of the kinds of food. So the number is going to be bigger than their percentage. The economics of it seem pretty clear to me, which is a large packaged goods producer, the marginal cost of acquiring a hexure is tiny compared to the volume that they produce. So you, if you're factoring it into your marketing budget, it pays for itself because you don't have to spend very much in total in order to be able to reach 2% in the market or 5% in the market, and that's a win. The New York Times in 1975 did a study, and the price for a consumer to purchase a kosher product when you buy Coca-Cola, how much are you as a consumer paying for the Orthodox Union, that ubiquitous OU on the label? It is 6.5 millionth of a penny. So based on incremental sales, from a, a factory perspective, it makes perfect sense, yes. But that's just one of the answers. Are kosher foods also a good um, item for Muslims who want halal food? And is, are, are there certifications for that separately as well? Or does kosher kind of stand in in that case? It used to be that it was only kosher. About 16% of all kosher consumers are Muslims. It's actually beautiful in that one of the few areas that imams and rabbis talk almost on a daily basis, has to do in the food industry. Right now, there is a movement within the Muslim world to create a halal certification. But in fact, when I was coming into the theater tonight, I met a few Muslim men, and I told them what I'm talking about, and they started rattling off all the kosher logos that they know by heart. <laughs> there are, surprisingly, about 2,500 kosher certification councils in wow. the world. Wow. 
is there a world standards body for that? I mean, is there an annual meeting of all the kosher certifications? There is. It's almost, you know, like the mafia heads from the various families. Yeah. <laughs> meeting in a freezer in Hell's Kitchen. Yes, there, there is. There is. Beret Lamb, uh, we'll call this one kosher, kosher everywhere. Does it, uh, does it all check out? Yeah, those numbers check out. Um, and I found something kind of upsetting in my fact-checking which is that the FDA actually allows 30 insect segments for every 3.5 ounces of peanut butter. <gasps> That's yep. a lot. But they're good. <laughs> I have something more uplifting also, which is that um, rappers like name-dropping kosher wines. Um, for example, the rapper Drake name-dropped Moscato, which is an Italian kosher wine. Drake is Jewish, by the way. Yes. Well, do you guys want to hear the song? I'd love to hear the song. It's a celebration, clap, clap, bravo, lobster and shrimp and a glass of Moscato for the girl who's a student and a friend. Because nothing goes with kosher wine like lobster and shrimp, Drake. Nicely done. <laughs> All right, thank you to Drake. Thanks to Beret Lamb. Thanks to Rabbi Tell for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. And would you please welcome our final contestant, Zoe Chance. Hi, Zoe. That's like the name of a spy would have a name like Zoe Chance. Zoe Chance, are you a spy? We'll start there. I'm undercover as a marketing professor at (laughs) Yale School of Management where I teach influence and persuasion to MBAs and executives. All right. You are our final under the hood contestant. Zoe, what do you have for us tonight? The question panelists is, how can you win a negotiation and have the loser still like you? Hmm. There are probably lots of answers, but... And are we talking about zero-sum game negotiations versus... Uh, Let's just say yeah to make it simple. Well, but there's some win-win jargon. negotiations, but that's when we're not trying to come up with a way to have a win-win is my yeah, point. Yeah. Is, this, is this like a, like a behavioral strategy? Yes, absolutely. Does it involve being affable? Does it involve smiling and posture and all that Flattery. kind of stuff? One thing that we're seeing sometimes too often um, in our modern world is people who stake out ridiculous positions and then back down to a semi-ridiculous position. Yes. You like his answer, don't you, Zoe? I do. You know, Black Friday sales is an example of that in commerce, where you put something out knowing you're no one's ever going to pay the retail price. And when someone buys it at 60% off, they're thrilled. But we also see it in real estate or my least favorite, a bully. And one of the most common tactics bullies have is don't make me punch you anymore. And so you alter your behavior, they stop punching you, and suddenly you're relieved that they're not punching you anymore. So a lot of people will just, they hate negotiating, and so they just go in and they say something along the lines of, listen, this is it, this is the best I can do, I'm not going to budge from this price. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that's weird is that actually people like those people less and like the Seth people Mm. more. Well, the question is whether it comes from a place where you have power or not. When someone who has power does it, I think it's uh, unconscionable. When both sides are coming from a place of equal power, then you're buying into the show and that whole thing. And yes, we, the behavioral economics show us that people like it more. I really don't like it when people who have power use it to bully other people. The strategy that you're talking about of making this extreme request followed by a smaller one is called a door-in-the-face strategy. <laughs> and 
we hardly ever do this. As normal people, we want to be liked, and we're reluctant to ask for too much. We're more likely to say, this is all I can do, that's it, and then not budge. When we don't budge, the person on the other side finds us very frustrating as a negotiator, and they feel skillless. When they negotiate with us in a door-in-the-face strategy where we ask for a lot, they say no, and then it's followed by a smaller request, they like us better and they feel more skillful because they got us to make a concession. A research or perceived example, concession, right? Because that's part of the strategy, right? It is an actual concession, right? So if I were to coach you on negotiations, I would coach you to ask for something you really, really want. And actually, my students who go out and practice this strategy, a lot of the time, they'll find the other person says yes to that initial high request because we're so miscalibrated about how awesome and generous people actually are. <laughs> Basically, you academics have spent the last 40 or 50 years kind of refining the wisdom that, for instance, used car salesmen have known for, for much longer, right? Which is, if you can set the anchor, as ridiculous as it might seem, you're still going to benefit. Is this a negotiating version of that, essentially, or different? Stephen, I think you've pretty much summed up all of academic marketing when you say <laughs> you y'alls have spent the last 40 or 50 years putting this academic spin on what used car salesmen already know, 100%. Yeah. Can I share a research story with the door in the face effect? Nerds like me refer to it as the juvenile delinquents at the zoo study. (laughs) And it's Professor Robert Cialdini, who's at Arizona, and he has experimenters intercept passersby and ask them, hey, would you be willing to spend a day chaperoning juvenile delinquents at the zoo? And they're like, no, totally not. And then with the door in the face strategy, half of them, they first ask, hey, would you be willing to spend two hours a week for two years tutoring juvenile delinquents? Everybody says no, but then after they say no, when they make the concession to the smaller request just one day at the zoo, most of them, the vast majority, say yes. Mm. I had a real-life experience of this just recently. Applied for a building permit and put lots of things in it that I didn't want. Mm. And when the review committee, they said at the end of it, God, you were so flexible and you were so wonderful. And I got the building permit for exactly what I wanted. Excellent. Zoe Chance, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Let's give all our contestants a hand one more time. Thank you. And now it is time for our panelists to vote. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites, and the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner. Then he or she will join us back on stage to play the next round with our panelists. So panelists, remember, when you're ranking these IDKs, there are three criteria to consider. Number one, did the contestant tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Now, will it be Noam Osband and Concealed Ovulation, which included, let me remind you, an original song to illustrate his IDK? (laughs) Will it be Molly West Duffy and her story of cheesy dreams? Will it be Michelle Young and the pneumatic kitty? Will it be Rabbi Moshe Taub with Kosher Kosher Everywhere? Or will it be Zoe Chance with Door in the Face Negotiating? While their votes are being cast, let me say this. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, spread the word. Give it a nice rating on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to tell me something I don't know, or if you just want to come see the show live, visit tmsidk.com. You'll see our dates in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Minneapolis. 
You can also find us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. Okay, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants. Sadly, there can only be one winner. Our four runners-up will each receive a certificate of impressive knowledge suitable for framing. And that leaves us with tonight's winner of Tell Me Something I Don't Know with an IDK called the Pneumatic Kitty, Michelle Young. Come on up, Michelle. Nicely done. Now, Michelle, what prize could we possibly give you that's commensurate with the wisdom that you've given us tonight? Well, do you remember back at the top of the show when we heard from NASA's planetary protection officer? It turns out that the best way to keep your spacecraft clean is actually to scrub it with a washcloth. That's right, Michelle Young. We are sending you home with your very own planetary protection kit, also known as a box of washcloths and a bottle of rubbing alcohol. Congratulations. But more significantly, Michelle Young, you also get to play, whether you like it or not, the next round of our game, along with our panelists as contestants. We call it the reference round, and it works like this. The four of you will each have one minute to come up with a good IDK that's somehow related to tonight's theme, Under the Hood. And where will you be finding this IDK? Well, we are going to give each of you one of the finest academic journals being published today, and you'll have a minute or two to page through it. Seth Godin, you'll get to dig an IDK out of a recent issue of The American Economist. Yes. Yeah, lucky dog. Uh, Faith Saley, you get Human Factors, the journal of the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society. Oh, I already have mine. (laughs) And Nicholas Negroponte, you drew the journal Criminal Justice and Behavior, so that should be fun. And our contestant winner, Michelle Young, uh, you get everyone's favorite journal, Trends in Cognitive Sciences. All those journals, I hope you'll agree, will help us get under the hood of something or other. So Faith, Seth, Nicholas, and Michelle will give you a couple minutes to scan through your journal in order to tell us something we don't know, something that's worth knowing, and something that's true. All right, go. While they're working, we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll hear what they came up with. And then our live audience will whittle these four contestants down to two. And those two will go head to head in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Welcome back. It's time for Seth Godin, Faith Saley, Nicholas Negroponte, and our contestant winner, Michelle Young, to tell us something we don't know about going under the hood based on their having spent a couple minutes with an academic journal. So let's hear first from Mr. Seth Godin. What can you tell us, having gotten to page through one of my all-time favorites, The American Economist? So they sampled 105 economics educators and asked them to rank the most important films for teaching economics, and they discovered the secret meaning of the movie Mary Poppins. (laughs) And in that movie, the 18th most important movie ever made about economics, we discover that George Banks, who's Michael's father, invests a tumpence in a bank. And when people see the greedy banker grabbing the money, 
it leads to a loss of investor confidence and there is a run on the bank. That, it turns out, is what Mary Poppins is about. Wowzer. And did you say that was ranked the 18th? 18th, right behind Pretty Woman. (laughs) All right. uh, Nicely, nicely done, Seth Godin. Faith Saley, who drew Human Factors, the Journal of the Human Factors in Ergonomics Society. Uh, There was a study called the Development and Validation of the Game User Experience Satisfaction Scale. The aim of the study was to develop and psychometrically validate a new instrument that comprehensively measures video game satisfaction based on key factors. It says close to 60% of Americans play video games. Uh, 40% of gamers are over 35 years old, and almost half are female. Um, So, you know, worth studying. So they narrowed it down to the things they think make up a good game, which are nine factors. Usability or playability. Narratives. Play engrossment. So when you get to... um, play engrossment, I find this terrifying because the more strongly you answer this, apparently the better the game is. Listen to this. I feel detached from the outside world while playing the game. I do not care to check events that are happening in the real world. I cannot tell that I am getting tired while playing the game. Uh, Nicholas Negroponte, Criminal Justice and Behavior. What did you find? It's a section on sexual orientation, bias, and crimes. And the LGB hate crimes are typically more violent and involve greater victim injury. That wasn't intuitively obvious, as compared to other victimizations. While limited research, I don't know why they're publishing it, while limited research (laughs) indicates that police are more responsive in sexual orientation bias cases than other types of bias crimes, other findings demonstrate inappropriate police victim interaction. Nicely done. And finally, Michelle Young, our contestant winner tonight, who's been poring over <laughs> the uh, trends in cognitive sciences, I believe. What would you, what'd you find for us yes. about Under the Hood? So amazingly, I, I found a topic actually rather dear to my heart. So some background. I actually was trained as a classical cellist here at Juilliard, and the one thing that really bugs me the most is when people sing out of tune. Uh, So this study is about people that are amusic, so people that either um, can't sing in tune or can't tell that things are out of tune or can't remember songs uh, if they don't hear the lyrics because they're not hearing the pitches. So apparently the amusic brain shows abnormalities in neural transition between the auditory cortex and the inferior frontal gyrus in the right cerebral hemisphere. So basically meaning the uh, signals between one side of the brain to the other that appreciates music, like the perception to the appreciation has a disconnect. So it also tells me that I shouldn't be so annoyed with (laughs) friends. (laughs) Well, uh, I have to say, I'm so impressed with how the four of you did. Thank you very much. Nice digging. Great. Great job. I think we all learned a good bit. So it's time now for our live audience to vote. Your top two choices will go on to our final round. So take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen, and your top two choices among our four contestants here will go on to the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. (laughs) 
All right, the live voting has closed. The votes have been tallied. And going on to our final round will be Michelle Young, our audience contestant who talked about amusia, congenital amusia, no less, and Seth Godin, who taught us the secret economic lessons of Mary Poppins. Congratulations. All right. So that means the two of you now will go head-to-head in our final round. And here's the way it is going to work. In a moment, we will reveal a topic related to tonight's theme, Under the Hood. The two of you, Michelle and Seth, will then have to come up with an IDK on the spot, using no research materials whatsoever. So on the very slight chance that one of you actually does make stuff up, don't forget, real-time human fact-checker Bray Lambs sitting right there. Okay, what is our final topic? Well... All night long, we've been talking about under the hood as a metaphor, but of course, it refers to the engine in a car. So tonight's topic, cars. Seth Godin, Michelle Young, tell us something we don't know. We'll give you a minute. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit tmsidk.com to keep up with our show, including our live taping schedule, and to find out how you can get tickets or be a contestant. If you would like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, please give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by TMSIDK underscore show. Okay, Michelle and Seth, it's time for you to tell us something we don't know about cars. Michelle, you first. Um... Did you know that when I was a teenager, uh, (laughs) um, my driving instructor told me and our classmates that what we needed to know most was how to drive a car, go through the drive-thru, order fries, ketchup, and be able to eat it while driving. (laughs) Love that. And then I failed my road test. So, and did you you get good at ordering the fries and the drive-thru? Oh, I'm really good at drive-thru. Yeah. Michelle, Seth Godin beat that, cars. Good news and bad news about self-driving cars. The good, news, <laughs> the good news is self-driving cars will eliminate almost all traffic jams and save millions and millions of lives. Uh, the bad news is because of ownership of software and lack of transparency, we're not going to know how the self-driving car is programmed in what to do in a real jam. Will it kill us, the driver? Will it kill the innocent pedestrian? What are its morals and its philosophies? Mm. Beret Lamb, I'd love to throw this to you for a quick fact check. Did Michelle Young's driving ed instructor actually teach her how to do that, first of all? So I found Michelle's fact very hard to fact check. Yeah. But I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and Seth, is it true, as Seth Godin says, that driverless cars will be awesome and horrible potentially at the same time? Yes, and I found an article that said that MIT is working on it. Mm, media, yeah, we're doing it. Yeah. Wait, so you do know all the secrets that we're not going to be able to know? Well, they're, they're two separate stories. One is keeping it closed, and the other is the morality. And it's, it's not so much killing you versus the, uh, you know, the person walking on the street. It's when you have to kill one of two people on the street and how you make the evaluation. Do you kill a young person? And who isn't wealthy or an old person because they've had a life already. I mean, you've got to kill one of them. <laughs> on yeah. that, uh, so bright, you got to wear shades. <laughs> on that really uh, lovely note, I think we should. Uh, <laughs> I think we should put this to a vote. It's kind of a metaphor for the vote now. You've yeah, got to kill one exactly of them, you guys, right. Seth or Michelle. 
You do, unfortunately, have to kill one of them. I don't think we need our fancy voting software for this. I think we're going to take a throat vote. So you're going to let us know. You want know to just call it a tie? With, I'm willing to just call it a tie. You want to call it? All right. Let, let, let me propose this then. All those in favor of a tie right now between Seth Godin and Michelle Young, let's make a lot of noise. It sounds to me like we've got a pair of winners. Nicely done. That's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know about going under the hood. I'd like to leave you with a quote from uh, one of all our favorites, the late, great Richard Feynman, the physicist, and much, much more. Nobody ever figures out what life is all about, and it doesn't matter, he once wrote. Explore the world. Nearly everything is really interesting if you go into it deeply enough. Couldn't agree with you more, Professor Feynman. Bravo. Thank you so much to our panelists tonight, Seth Godin, Faith Saley, Nicholas Negroponte. Thanks to our wonderful contestants, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Thank you so much. Have a great night. On next week's show, we'll gather a panel of very smart people to talk about stupid stuff. Our panelists are the entrepreneur and author James Altucher, the entrepreneur and renaissance lady Mickey Agrawal, and the comedian Asif Manvi. He came to America and somebody took him out for brunch and he thought it was a third meal between breakfast and lunch. He was like, we're moving here. That's it. It's next week on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at tmsidk.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.